Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so over the past few months, we've been talking about the order of salvation. We talked about predestination, calling, justification, sanctification. Last week, we talked about eternal security, okay? But there's, this is not necessarily part of the order of salvation, but it's a topic that I think is closely tied to eternal security, and it's the issue of the assurance of salvation. So, we're going to be in Romans a lot tonight, so turn to Romans chapter 5. Seems like we always go back to Romans when we're talking about salvation. So, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 3. Let's just read that together. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Okay, we have been justified by faith. Justification answers the question, how am I saved? Okay, we talked a lot. How am I saved? I'm saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. I am saved by placing my faith in Christ. Okay, now turn to Romans chapter 8. That's the question, how am I saved? You're saved by faith in Christ. We looked at this over the, the months here, Romans 8, uh, 30, or 29 and 30. This is the order of salvation again. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we are saved because God in eternity past chose us to be saved. The Holy Spirit at a time in place, in a point in time, called us to be saved. We placed our faith in Jesus Christ, and we are saved, and we know one day we will be saved and go to heaven, okay? So assurance asks a different question. It's not, how am I saved? Assurance answers the question, how do I know I'm saved? How do I know I'm saved? Now, please don't raise your hand, but I will probably raise my hand if I was out in the audience. How many of you have ever struggled or doubted your salvation? Or you ever thought to yourself, man, if I really did that, how could I really be saved? Does God really love me? Did, did, did I fall out of His grace just this last time? Have I done one stupid thing one too many times that God stops loving me? Now, I know we would never say that out loud, but maybe in our heart of hearts when we go through discouraging times, we may question or doubt our salvation. So let me give you just a brief definition. This is from Sinclair Ferguson. He says this, Assurance is the conscious confidence that we are in a right relationship with God through Christ. It's a conscience, conscious confidence, meaning you have confidence that you're saved, and you're aware of that, and you're standing in the 
in the assurance and confidence of that. Now, historically, there have been three extremes to understanding the doctrine of assurance. So when you go all the way back to really the Protestant Reformation and you talk about the last five or six hundred years in Christianity, there have been three extremes. And so the first extreme is this, and these are all wrong, okay? So the first extreme is assurance of salvation is impossible for Christians. You can never be sure you are saved. This is the view of the Roman Catholic Church. This is what the entire Protestant Reformation was fought over because the Protestant Reformation, Calvin and Zwingli and Luther and the, and the Reformers said, you can know that you're saved because you've placed your faith in Christ. And the Roman Catholic Church came along and said, now that's very presumptuous. Nobody ever knows with certainty that they're saved. And so in response to the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church met together and they had the, what was called the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent came up with the articles of the Council of Trent. It's the official Roman Catholic teaching. It has not been rescinded to this day, so this is still what they believe. So, in session 6, chapter 9 of the Council of Trent, they say this, No one can know with a certainty of faith that he has obtained the grace of God. No one can know. You can never fully know if you're saved. That's why a lot of Roman Catholics, and I'm not saying anything necessarily against them, but a lot of times they live in fear and they live in anxiety and they're not sure if they're going to go to heaven because they're not really sure if they're saved. What must I do to keep myself saved? So Roman Catholics would deny that you can truly be assured of your salvation. Now, last week when we talked about eternal security, we talked about those that believe you can walk away from your faith. Okay, so Arminians those from the Nazarene background, those from Wesleyan, those that are Methodist, those that are more Arminian in their understanding, they also don't believe you can have assurance of salvation. Because if you chose to get in, you can choose to get out. And if you choose to get out, God will allow you to use your free will to get out and will not stop you. And so maybe you're wondering if you got yourself out by committing one too many sins for them for the Wesleyan Arminian they say you can have assurance at a point in time based on the evidence and fruit in your life but it's never an assurance that is permanent because there's always the possibility of falling away they would say in this moment in time, I'm looking at fruit in my life and I can be assured that I'm saved because I see fruit, but I may actually not have fruit and I may walk away, so I'm not fully sure that I'm going to be saved to the end. So I can't, I can't be fully sure of my salvation. So Roman Catholics believe you can't be sure. Arminians and Wesleyans and Nazarenes believe you can't be sure. And then in Pentecostal circles, you can can't necessarily be sure of your salvation because in their theology you have to have the second blessing which manifests itself in speaking in tongues so if you're not experiencing the charismatic gifts of healing or prophecy or speaking in tongues if you're not if you're not experiencing all these things then you may not necessarily be saved 
Now, Arminianism, Pentecostalism can lead to extreme emotionalism and mood strings, mood swings, where you can get really excited for a time because you're, you're on fire for Jesus, and then when you don't see any fruit in your life, you can go through times of depression wondering, if am I really saved? So the first extreme that's wrong is no Christian can ever truly be sure that they're saved. It's impossible. Okay, second extreme or faulty view. I call this easy believism. This is the idea that in a gospel presentation, you're told, hey, just accept Jesus into your heart. Everything will be good. Just say the prayer, walk the aisle, raise your hand. Once saved, always saved. You said the prayer. Now, never doubt your salvation. Never question your salvation. You don't really have to produce fruit. You don't really have to repent. There's really no such thing as lordship. You can pretty much live however you're going to live because, after all, you've got your free ticket to heaven. So, therefore, live however you want to because, after all, you're saved. This leads to presumption. This leads to never examining yourself. This leads to never looking for fruit in your life. This leads to the presumption that just because I walked an aisle or said a prayer, I may be saved, but I'm not really sure. That's easy believism. Okay, here's the third one, okay? This this may be a term you never heard. Hard believism, okay? Hard believism is just the exact opposite of easy believism. That's a hard word to say. So hard believism says this, I've got to always keep looking inside of myself for fruit, and I've got, I'm, I need to have fruit, and you always measure yourself against others, you put unrealistic expectations on yourself, you set the bar really high, you become overly legalistic, and if you don't measure up to these like extra biblical qualifications, then I must not be saved. You're never looking outside of yourself to Christ, you're always looking, at, looking inside to see if I've done enough to make sure that I'm saved. It's hard believism. You're always living in fear that somehow you're not truly saved because you're not producing enough fruit that's measurable or you're comparing yourself to another Christian and you don't look as good as they do. So I'm hard on myself and therefore I must not be saved. Now here's the reality. Now why do, why do all these extremes exist? These extremes exist because when you look at your life and you see sin in your life and you struggle with sin, you are tempted to think, well then, if I'm struggling with sin, then maybe, maybe, just maybe, I'm not saved. Maybe I never really did trust Jesus for salvation. Maybe I, maybe I think I'm saved, but I don't know I'm saved. So tonight, we're going to talk about assurance of salvation. And let me just say, the correct biblical view is it is possible that you can have assurance of salvation. Again, Assurance is not how am I saved. Assurance is how do I know I'm saved. How do you rest in the security that you know that you're already saved? So let's talk about the possibility of assurance. Now, with that easy believism extreme, there is such a category that our Baptist confession and the Puritans of old, they would call it temporary believers. We would maybe call it false converts. So the Bible does speak of those who may have at a time once professed faith in Christ, but they were not truly saved by grace alone. They appeared to be saved, 
but they were not regenerated. We've often said it this way. They may have professed faith, but they did not possess faith. They, they, they had an outward show. They may have gotten baptized. They may have walked an aisle. They may have even taught a Sunday school class. But the whole time they were faking it. It wasn't true saving faith. And some of the most scary words that Jesus has ever said are in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's addressed to those that were fakers or hypocrites or those that weren't truly saved but thought they were or pretended that they were. So in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. But I did all these things, Jesus. I did all these spiritual activities. I never knew you. So here's the, here's the rub. This is a practice I make as pastor. I don't ever think it's my business to give somebody the assurance of salvation. Because I've seen growing up in the circles I grew up, here's how it worked. You would have an altar call at the end of the service. A person would come forward. You may have never seen them before in your life. They say a quick prayer, and then they're pronounced immediately saved and turn around and introduced to the congregation as a believer. This person's now saved. Now, they may or may not be saved. What have they done? They've made a profession of faith. Now, that is the old way of doing it. An altar call, you present somebody saved. The way that we do it at Emmanuel is the public profession of faith is your baptism. And that's where we have time to spend with the person and talk to them about baptism and make sure they understand what it means and that they're, they're, they've thought it through, they know they're making the choice, it's their choice. And then when they stand in the waters of baptism, it's an important thing than just kind of a quick emotional decision coming to the front. They've thought it through, they're standing before people, they're saying publicly, I am saved. Now, they could always again fake it at that point. All I can do as pastors go by their public profession of faith. I can't look into their hearts and judge whether they're saved. So true believers, those that have truly been predestined and called and regenerated and justified and adopted, true believers, you can have assurance of salvation. You can have hope that God has saved you. So your Bible's open to Romans, but I've got it on the screen. Romans 5.5 5 says this, Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He's given to us. You can have hope that you're saved. You don't have to feel shame that you're not saved because you've been justified. The Holy Spirit's been given to you and you're saved by grace. Okay, so... The thesis or the main point tonight is true believers can have assurance of salvation. You can know that you're saved. Okay, that's the thesis. That's the claim. That's the, that's the point. Now, what I want to do is I want to give three foundations for that assurance. What are the three things that the Bible speaks of that helps you to know that you are saved? The first is objective and the most important. The second two are subjective and they're important but less important. So here's the first. Foundation, solid foundation, grounding, 
to know that you are saved. It is this, first, the blood and righteousness of Christ are revealed in the gospel, give us infallible insurance. This is the most important because it's objective. Here's basically what I'm saying. How do you know you are saved? Because you've believed in Jesus, and the Bible says that all who believe in Jesus are saved. You're, you're saved based on the blood of Christ saving you. You don't save yourself. It's not an emotional experience. You are objectively saved because you've placed your faith in Christ. And the Bible says all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So the foundation of your assurance is the blood of Christ in your salvation. Psalm 125.1 is an interesting passage of Scripture. It says this, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. Now what's Mount Zion? It's a temple mount. It's where the temple is. Let's make it a little bit more real to us. Like when you think of Colorado, some of you have different visions based upon where you grew up in Colorado. When you look at the front range, what's the first mountain you see? For me, it's Pikes Peak because I grew up in Colorado Springs. When I think of the front range, I have Pikes Peak embedded in my my, my imagination. I know what it looks like. For some of you, it may be Long's Peak. For some of you, it may be like Mount Evans or, or some place that you look at. So that's a mountain. Can that mountain be moved? Unless God wants to. Like, realistically, can the mountain, like, for, for all these years, Pikes Peak's been there. It hasn't moved. And what does God say about us? Those who trust in the Lord, if you're trusting in Jesus, you're like a mountain. And not just any mountain, but Mount Zion God's holy mountain, that mountain cannot be moved. You cannot be moved. That mountain's always going to be there, meaning you're always going to be saved because you're trusting not in yourself, you're trusting in the Lord, and you're like a mountain that can't be moved. It's an objective reality. You are saved, you will be saved. Now, we're in Romans, so look at Romans chapter, one, chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. What is condemnation? There's no punishment. There's no fear of hell. There's no guilt for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. You've trusted in Christ Jesus. Let's go to the end of Romans chapter 8. 31 through 39. This is a beautiful passage of scripture, but this is probably the most important. What shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the objective reality that God has saved you 
and he will hold you and he will keep you and nothing will separate you from his love. So the temptation, when you think about assurance, is to first look inward. Am I doing enough? Am I holy enough? Am I walking in the ways of the Lord enough? Am I producing enough fruit? Am I obedient enough? We'll get to that, but that's not the first place you should look. That's subjective because you're looking at yourself and what you're doing. The only objective place you can look is outside of yourself to the finished work of Christ and what Christ has said about you in your salvation. So in assurance, we never first want to look inward to see how we're doing. Because what often happens when you look inward to see how you're doing? What if you're not doing well? That may be like, oh, wow, I'm not walking in the way of the Lord. I must not be saved then. No, you look outside yourself to the one who saved you, and you're objectively saved because you've trusted in Christ. He holds you. He keeps you. It's his blood and righteousness. That's why Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 Looking to Jesus, or as some translations say, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Look outside of yourself to Jesus and his finished work as the foundation or the, or the, the grounding of your assurance. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him, that's Jesus. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. All God's promises are yes in Jesus. If you're connected to Jesus by faith, all those promises are yours. And what are those promises? I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You are mine. You are saved. It's all about who you are in Christ, looking outside of yourself to the finished work of Christ. You also think about how God has rescued you from your old life. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. I have been transferred out of darkness. I am in light. I have my sins forgiven. This is nothing I've done. I'm not looking inward for something I've done. I'm looking out to what Christ has done for me. Psalm 89, 28, My steadfast love will keep. I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. God will love you forever. And then Paul says this in 2 Timothy 1.12, which is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what's been entrusted to me. I know whom I believed. I believed in Jesus, and because I believed in Jesus, I know he's going to keep me saved till that day, and I have the confidence that my salvation is not based upon something I've done, but totally in what he's done. Now let me give you a long quote from John Calvin that's not on your sheet. He says this, If you look to yourself, damnation is certain. Okay? If you look to yourself, damnation is certain. But since Christ has been communicated to you with all his benefits... So that all which is his is made yours, you become a member of him, 
and hence one with him. His righteousness covers your sins. His salvation extinguishes your condemnation. He interposes with his worthiness and so prevents your unworthiness from coming into the view of God. Thus it truly is. It will never do to separate Christ from us nor us from him. His point is this. If you look inside yourself, you're always going to be distressed if that's where you look first. Our assurance of salvation is based upon looking outward to what Christ has done for us and his promises to us. So you and I can have assurance of salvation because of what God has done. Now, I want you to think about how the Trinity works in this. Now, this is under the big category. Category number one, our assurance is based upon the work of Christ. So sub, three sub-things under this, okay? Like sub-point sub under this big point. Our assurance rests in the objective work of the triune God. Objective. Okay, the triune God. So, the Father. The ground for our assurance is God's sovereign predestination of us in eternity past. God, the Father, chose us, adopted us, loved us. Now, I told my staff this this week in staff meeting, and they all looked at me like I was crazy. It's a quote from, a, from an old Dutch theologian named Gerhardus Voss, and it goes like this. God will never stop loving you because he never began. You're like, what? Are you saying God doesn't love me? No, I said God will never stop loving you because he never began. Let me ask you a question. When did God start loving you? Uh, trick question, huh? When did God start loving you? Or has God always loved you? If God's eternal, let me give you a verse here. Jeremiah 31.3 I have loved you. This is God speaking. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. I've loved you with an everlasting love. What's an everlasting love? Now, we can think of everlasting as going forward in time, right? I've loved you at a point in time, and I'm going to keep loving you till eternity. But how does eternity work? Is it linear just going forward? First of all, eternity is not based upon a linear time, but think about going backwards if there's such a thing in time. Let's just put it this way. When did God choose you before the foundation of the world? Why did God choose you? Because he loved you. When did God start loving you? He never started because he always has, and he will never stop. Now, that's going to blow your mind here, okay? So I'm not trying to blow your mind tonight. What I'm saying is, is that God's love for you is based in the Father's election, predestination, his eternal, everlasting love for you. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So your assurance is based in the Father's objective work for you in loving and choosing you before the foundation of the world. And if he, if he did that in eternity past, he's going to keep loving you all the way through. Okay, what about the Son? Jesus the Son. The other ground for our assurance is justification by faith alone where we are secure in Christ. We've looked at this passage, like probably this passage more than either passage over the past few months when we're talking about the order of salvation. 
John 6, 37-39. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. If the Father has given you to Jesus and Jesus died for you, is Jesus ever going to cast you out? No. He's going to raise you up on the last day. That's an objective reality that the Father loves you, Jesus loves you. Okay, who's the third person of the Trinity? The Holy Spirit. What has the Holy Spirit done for you to give you assurance of salvation objectively? Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you as a guarantee that you're going to have heaven. So objectively, verifiably, whether you feel like it or not, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the triune God has saved you, has loved you, and will always love you, and your assurance is based upon that objective work. Now, let me give you an illustration from the Pilgrim's Progress. Some of you have read it. Some of you have seen it. So towards the end of Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, in his journey, so Christian and his friend Hopeful, they're not supposed to go on Bypath Meadow. They get sidetracked. So they go on Bypath Meadow, and they kind of get sleepy, and they kind of get lost, and they get captured by the giant, giant despair. And giant despair take Christian and Hopeful to his castle. Anybody remember the name of the castle? It's called Doubting Castle. It's an allegory for how Christians doubt their salvation. It's Doubting Castle. And when you begin to doubt, you go into despair. So giant despair comes down to Christian and Hopeful who are in the dungeon and says, my wife wants me to beat you to a pulp. So you have two choices. I can come down and beat you to a pulp, but really what I want you to do is I want you to commit suicide. So on this table, I've got poison, I've got a knife, and I've got a rope. I want you to be so discouraged and so distraught that you commit suicide. And so Christian and Hopeful are in that dungeon and they're, they're struggling and they're, they want to give up and they're doubting whether God's good to them and they're despairing because they're in Doubting Castle. And then basically Christian is about ready to drink the poison and Hopeful says, don't, don't. You know, God still loves us. And then Christian remembers something around his neck. He remembers that when he got saved... The shining ones, the angels, when he got saved in the story, gave him new clothes, and they gave him a key. And they said, this is the key called promise, and it will open up any door to God's promises. So here's the point. That key was always around Christian's neck the whole time. He just forgot about it. When he realized that he had the key promise, it could open any door. So they were able to doubting castle and giant despair by opening up the door using the key promise so that's a picture of when you lack assurance of salvation and you start to despair and doubt 
you remember the objective promises that God has given you and they're there all the time. You just have to remember them. You just have to believe them. You just have to trust objectively, look outside of yourself to the promises of God that He loves you and He will keep you safe. So the first ground or foundation of your assurance of salvation is objective. It's outside of yourself. It's something you did not contribute to. It's the triune work of the Father, Son, and Spirit saving you. It's Jesus dying on the cross for you. It's you believing in that. It's the promises of God. All right, that's the most important. But there are two others. So here's the second. Second, and this is more subjective, Second, our assurance is also built on the inward evidence of fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in our life. So what I'm saying is this. Another way to know you're saved is are you demonstrating fruit of salvation? Now, notice I did not quantify that. I want to be very careful that we don't go into hard believism and say, you have to have X amount of fruit in order to truly know that you're saved. I just said fruit. Because some of you are going to have different fruit than others based upon your sanctification. If you start comparing your fruit to other people's fruit, it it leads into competition and pride and despair. But there needs to be some type of evidence of fruit in your life. And so Matthew 7, 16-20 says this, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or Figs from thistles, that's hard to say. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. In other words, if you're a Christian and you've been changed from the inside out, if you're a good tree because God's made you a good tree, you're going to produce fruit. If you're not saved and you're a bad tree, you're not going to produce fruit because you're not saved. But if you're saved, you'll produce fruit. So, this is about examining yourselves, looking for inward evidences of Christian fruit in your life. So, one of the classic passages of Scripture that talks about this is in 2 Peter. So, I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter. And actually, I want to start in verse 3. I know the screen says verse 4, but I actually want to start in verse 3. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. I want to start with verse 3, and then we'll go through 4 through 11, okay? Is everybody there? 2 Peter, chapter 1, starting in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. That's important to set the stage for what, what we're about to read here. God's divine power has given you everything you need. You can produce fruit in your life. You can obey because God's power is available to you. He's given you everything you need. No Christian can ever say, I don't have God's power or I can't do it. You can. The question is, are you realizing that? Are you relying upon that? So let's continue reading. 
by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises. Okay, there's those promises. So that through them, the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. Okay, Paul, or Peter starts with the, what we call the indicative. He starts with who you are in Christ. You have these promises. You have God's grace. You have God's power. You're a new creation in Christ. You are saved. He's assuming you're saved. Okay, look what he says there in verse 5. For this very reason, okay, because you have everything that you need, because you have God's power, because you have these promises, because you're regenerated, for this very reason, here's what you need to do. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly love, and brotherly love with affection. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so Paul, our Peter here, gives a list. Okay, you are saved, objectively. Now, what should you be looking for in your life? He calls these fruits that should be increasing. Now, again, he doesn't quantify the fruit and say how much, but he does list some things here. So, for example, he says, are you supplementing your faith with virtue? Are you growing in the knowledge of Christ? Are you, are you knowing more about Jesus? Are you growing in self-control? Are you growing in steadfastness and patience? Are you growing in godliness? Is your love for other brothers and sisters growing? Are are you growing? Are you increasing in these things? Only you can answer that question. Do I see increasing of these things in my life as a result of the Holy Spirit doing a work in me? Okay? Now, here's the question. What if those things aren't there? the way you want them to be there. Does that mean that you're not a Christian? No. Again, I didn't quantify the fruit. I just said, are those things there, and are they increasing? Look at verse 9. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Notice how he doesn't point you back to yourself. Peter doesn't say, hey, if if you're not doing well in these things... Do better. What does he say? You've forgotten that Jesus cleansed you. Go, go back outside yourself. Look to Jesus. Go back and, and get your eyes fixed on Jesus. His divine power gives you everything. Know that the Holy Spirit lives in you. And then notice what he says there in verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Make your calling and election sure. In other words, another way of saying, make sure you're saved. And how do you make sure you're saved? Well, I could answer it two ways. One, I could say, make sure you're saved by looking at this fruit in your life. That's secondary. In this passage of Scripture, he does tell us to make sure we look at the fruit in our life. But what does he say first? Go back and remember that you were cleansed from your former sins. Go back and remember that you have these promises from Christ. Go back and remember that you've been given all things. So so how do you make your calling and election sure? First, it's the objective work of Christ in your believing in Him. That's the most important. But number two, it's the evidence of fruit in your life. Are you increasing and growing in this fruit? 1 John 2, 3. 
By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Are you obeying God's commandments? If you are a Christian, you will want to obey God. Does this mean you'll perfectly do it all the time? No, but you'll want to. 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So are you growing in love? Are you growing in knowledge? Are you growing in wisdom? Are you growing in godliness? Is there evidences of fruit in your life? If there's not, here's the next question. What happens when you don't see any evidence of fruit in our lives? Again, we need to be very careful that we don't somehow put an unrealistic expectation on ourselves to have some type of level or amount of fruit that we'd like to see. Because here's the problem. What happens if you don't have the fruit you'd like to see? What are you going to get? You're going to get discouraged. Well, I'm not where I want to be. I'm not as mature as so-and-so over there. I still struggle with this sin. Therefore, my logical conclusion is I must not, if I'm not seeing a level or an amount or an intensity of fruit the way I want to see it, my conclusion, faulty, is I must not be saved. I wonder if I'm even saved in the first place. So let me give you an example, okay? So let's say you're reading your Bible, and you're reading the Beatitudes, and all of a sudden you come across Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And you look at your life, you're like, ah, hunger and thirst for righteousness. I wonder if I've hungered and thirst enough. I wonder if I've radically reached this level of really hungering and really thirsting, and I'm doing it more than the guy over there. Uh, What if I'm really not hungering and thirsting at this extreme level the way I should be? Does that mean I'm not saved? Okay, does Jesus give us an amount there? Does he say, if you, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for Jesus really radically, or at this percentage? No. It's not the amount or the intensity or the level of the thirsting, but the fact of this. If you're a Christian, you want to thirst for righteousness. If you're not a Christian, do you want to do that? Now, I'm not trying to to get an easy way out of here, but I'm just saying this. The mere fact that you have the desire to do it shows that you're probably saved. Because a non-Christian is not going to have that desire. They're not going to want to hunger. What non-Christian do you know is going to want to hunger and thirst for righteousness and glorify God? Now, a non-Christian might want to be good or spiritual or maybe try to be a good citizen or whatever, but when it comes fundamentally down to hungering and thirsting for righteousness, so the mere fact that you want to do it, why do you want to do it? Because the Holy Spirit's put that desire in you to want to do it. And why is that Holy Spirit there in you giving you the desire to want to do it? Because you're saved. Because if you, if you weren't saved, you wouldn't have the Holy Spirit. So I, want, I don't want you to be so hard on yourself to go into hard believism by saying, my goodness, if I don't have this certain level of fruit or this certain level of obedience, I must not be saved. The mere fact that you have a desire to, but you don't always 
means that you are saved because if you weren't saved, you wouldn't have that desire. So you can be confident that you may not be at this extreme level of hungering and thirsting, maybe the way somebody down the street is, but the fact that you want to and you desire to. Okay, but let me give you some cautions here because this is subjective. What are you looking at? You're looking at yourself at this point. The first is objective. You're looking outside yourself to the finished work of Christ and the triune God and what God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have done for you. The second evidence is you're looking at fruit in your life. And so you can you cannot always see things correctly. So let me give you some cautions regarding searching inwardly for evidences of grace. So here's first. Be careful how you define these marks of grace. Don't be overly legalistic or unrealistic, which can lead to perfectionism. In other words, don't say, I've got to be perfect in every single area or I'm not saved. Or, I've got to read my Bible every day for 30 minutes or I'm not saved. Okay, let me ask you a question. Where in the Bible does it say you have to read your Bible every day for 30 minutes and you're not saved? That's an unrealistic expectation that, you, that people put on themselves to try to measure fruit. Okay, so let me give you an example. 1 John 3.24 says this. Whoever keeps his commandment abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, the spirit who's, whom he's given us. Okay, are we supposed to keep the commandments? Yes. What happens if we don't always do that? Well, 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. Sometimes we can fool ourselves into thinking that I can reach this level of perfection where I never sin, and then you, you're, it's so unrealistic that you're putting these unrealistic definitions of these marks of grace. So be careful that you don't um, become overly legalistic. Second, always test yourself by the only true standard of God's Word, not comparing yourself to others. Now, it's not necessarily wrong to look at another Christian and say, I admire that Christian in their walk with Christ. But you need to always measure your fruit by the Scriptures and what the Scriptures say, not trying to compare yourself to somebody else. Psalm 119.105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Why do you always want to measure yourself by the Scriptures? Because no matter how good you think that person is that you're comparing yourself to or, you want, or you're looking up to, that person is always going to have a, a secret hidden sin you don't know about. You see them publicly the way they want you to see them. Unless maybe you're married to them and you know all the warts and all, but even then... So if you try to compare yourself to others, you're always going to be let down. Always make sure that you have the standard of God's Word. Okay, I think I've said this before, but I'll say it again. This is third. Don't look so much for these signs that they replace looking outside of yourself and trusting in Christ alone. Remember I said the first objective, the first foundation, the objective is the most important. Always first, always, if you have a choice, always first look outside yourself to the finished work of Christ and believe in Jesus and His promises before you start looking inwardly. Because if you, if you turn the, the, the apple cart the other way or if you, if you get the cart before the horse, if you start always looking for inward evidences, then what are you always going to be looking at? yourself and not Jesus and so you can be unbalanced in, in, in looking inwardly as opposed to looking outwardly 
And then we need to be careful when we're thinking about evangelism or salvation or others that don't know Jesus. Don't make evidence of these signs the ground or the cause of your salvation. In other words, don't say this like, the reason I'm saved is because I have these evidences of grace. Why, what's the reason why you're saved? Because the Father chose you and the Spirit called you and you believed in Jesus and Christ died for you. It's not on your evidences of grace or fruit that you're saved. It's on the basis of Christ and His righteousness. So the evidences aren't there to show you that are not what make you saved. They're evidences that you are already saved. Does, does that make sense? And then number five here. Don't make these signs a prerequisite for lost people to trust in Jesus. There, there are some groups out there that when they're, when they're, they, 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 they've raised the bar so high that they're looking for like they're looking for fruit of the spirit in a non-Christian before they like share the gospel with them. I want to I see evidences of the spirit. I want to see some fruit in their life, and then I'll share the gospel with them. Well, you can't expect a lost person to have the fruit if they're not saved yet. And then here's a, here's a practical one. Do not begin looking all over the place for evidence, but start with the main evidence, saving faith. Okay? There's a lot of different evidences you can look for, and you can be scatterbrained all over the place looking for all these evidences, but really the, f- the main evidence is, is, am I trusting in Jesus? That's the root, and then from there you can branch out and start looking for the other evidences. Because saving faith is the most important. Because what, is, what does Peter say here in this passage? In verse 5, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. And then he lists those things. The most important evidence to be looking for is, am I trusting in Jesus and his promises? <coughs> Excuse me. Because you can get really discouraged. <coughs> you can get really discouraged if you're looking all over the place for all this different fruit in your life and you're not seeing very much of it. Go back to the main one. Start at the beginning. Am I trusting in Jesus and His promises? All right. So the first foundation is objective. It's the most important. You know you are saved because you have trusted in Christ. The Father's chosen you. The Son has died for you. The Spirit's living inside of you. It's not what you've done, but it's what the triune God has done for you. It's objective. It's verifiable. It doesn't, it's not based upon your feelings. It's not based upon what you do. It's all based upon what God does for you. The only thing you did was trust. Second evidence is, okay, I look for fruit. Do I have increasing fruit in my life to show that I am indeed a Christian? If there's no fruit, you need to evaluate. Again, I'm not telling you what level or what amount of fruit you need to have. Just you need to be increasing. And only you know that because you know your life. Now here's the third one. And this is tricky. 
because the Bible does speak about this, and there's some debate about this. There's some differences of opinion on this third one. And the reason why it's third is because it's the, it's the hardest one to understand, and it may be the most difficult to really um, ascertain. So here's the third foundation. Assurance is further based on the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirit that we are children of God. Okay, it's called the internal witness of the Holy Spirit to our spirit. Now, where do we get this? Well, Paul says in Romans 8, 15-16, this is what he says. This is where, this is where we get this teaching. And, and again, there's different views and there's a continuum on this, and, I, and I'm going to give you some guardrails here, but the Bible does teach this, and so we've got to understand what it means. So Romans 8, 15-16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And here's, here's the verse, verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. Now, what does it mean that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God? What does that mean? Okay, there's two views on this, historically, among you know, Reformed evangelicals. The first is, the first use this, is that we, all we need are the first two foundations I just talked about. This, is unne- this third one's unnecessary. What, what this is, is, is unnecessary. Basically, it's the objective work of Christ on our behalf and self-examination to see if we have evidence of fruits in our lives. The first two are all that we need. You don't need, the, the, the Spirit's going to, the Spirit doesn't have to do a, a witnessing work in your heart to let you know that you're saved. Okay, here's the second view. And I hold to this view with a few guardrails, okay? The second view is this. There is a third foundation. It's based upon the scripture here. And it, it is the direct or the immediate witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart at that moment in time that gives you a special awareness or overwhelming sense that you are indeed a Christian. Okay, so it's more than just I'm objectively believing what God has said. It's more than just I'm seeing fruit in my life. There's a third one where in specific moments in time, supernaturally the Holy Spirit gives you an inner awareness, whether you call it a peace or an overwhelming sense, where He just ministers to your heart and gives you that calm to know, yes, you're saved. Yes, you're a child. Now, let me give you an example of this, okay? And again, I want to give you a couple of guardrails about this because we need to be careful. This is very, very subjective. So like, for example, Sunday, I preached 1 Timothy. Um, so let's say you're sitting in the worship service on Sunday, and, and, we, and this last Sunday, 1 Timothy 1.16, the reason I picked 1 Timothy 1.16 because we, we, we were there a few days ago. So Paul says, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example of those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Okay, so you heard me preach, and you, you heard me talk about that perfect patience that Jesus shows you. And maybe you came in the worship service, and you were struggling, and you were doubting, and you wondered if God loved you. And when you heard that word that I preached, and you heard that scripture where it talked about the perfect patience, in that moment in the worship service, you just had a warmth in your heart, where it, that word jumped off the page and then just immediately and internally you felt this overwhelming sense that, man, 
God has been patient with me and I feel so much better now. I know I'm a Christian because he's been patient with me. Okay, it's, it's that, it's, and I want to say mystical because that's kind of taken a little bit too far, but it is that immediate, direct awareness where you know you're a believer and the Holy Spirit witnesses to your spirit in that moment that it's true. Now, here's where we have to have some guardrails. This is why it's third on the list, okay? I believe that this sometimes, keyword, sometimes happens, but should not be the first thing we seek. The first two foundations should be the normal means of gaining assurance. In other words, don't always be waiting for a tingle in your spine or a inner awareness to let you know these things. That, that may or may not happen. It sometimes does. And here's why it sometimes does. The Spirit is sovereign. He will do that when He sees fit to do that. It's not something even you can control. The Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you're a child of God. He's going to sovereignly do that. And if... so. This can some, the reason why some people reject this view, is, and I understand why, is that it can lead to some faulty theology. So let, let's put some guardrails up on this, okay? Because some of you might be like, well, this is, you're going a little bit too far, Pastor Sean. This, this is a little bit too subjective. This immediate, direct impression the Holy Spirit gives me that I'm a child of God. Okay. We've got to deal with this passage of Scripture because it's before us, so we've we got to figure out what it means. So let me give you some guardrails. Okay, how do, how do we put up some guardrails on this? Okay, first, don't make much of these experiences. They're not the norm, they're the exception. When the Lord has done it for you, praise Him and realize that was a special thing that happened, but that may never happen again. And don't seek that as the normal way that God operates. Because... Other believers may have never experienced that, and that does not mean they're second-class Christians. Maybe you've never had that happen to you. Then you can start to worry, well, I've never had that happen to me. Then maybe I'm not a Christian. If I've never had that direct, immediate sense of overwhelming uh, sense of the Spirit in my life, then, then if that's never happened to me, then maybe I'm not a Christian. And I hear about these other people that have it, and they must be truly Christians or super Christians. Now I feel even worse because it hasn't happened to me. So, yes, it may happen. Can you control it? No. Should you always seek it? No. Are you thankful when it happens? Yes. May it happen again? Maybe. Okay? Another guardrail. Always test this experience with the Word of God to avoid false mysticism. The Holy Spirit's never going to lead you or guide you or impress you, if you like that word, to do something that goes against God's word. It's not like you're going to be in a worship service and all of a sudden you're going to get this great feeling that, yeah, I should go rob a bank now because I feel like, you know, I need, I need more money. And it's the Holy Spirit that told me to do that. I mean, that's not going to happen. That's an extreme example, but that's not going to happen. Kind of the same thing here, number three. Third. The Holy Spirit will never direct you to do something against God's written word. So how do you test these inward experiences? Let me give you two, two, two big guardrails. If these experiences 
don't produce the fruit of the Spirit or the Beatitudes, they're probably not of the Lord. Because what does the Holy Spirit do? He produces the fruit of the Spirit, and a true Christian will display the Beatitudes. So 2 Corinthians 1, 21-22. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and also put a seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. We do have the Holy Spirit in us, and He does guide us, and He does witness to our spirit. How that all works, I do not know. That's why it's third on the list, and we should not use it as the norm for gaining assurance. 1 John 4, 13, By this we know we abide in Him because He's given us His Spirit. Now, let me give you a syllogism. The Puritans would give a syllogism oftentimes as a way to help you understand or diagnose if you're a Christian. Okay, so what's a syllogism? A syllogism is this. I got major premise. If major premise is true and then minor premise is true, then the conclusion is true. It's kind of like a math problem. A plus B equals C. Or if, 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 my, if major premise is correct and minor premise is correct, you're going to come to the correct conclusion. If, if any one of those things are wrong, you're going to come to the wrong conclusion. So here's the syllogism. So here's the major premise. The Bible says that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, justified, adopted, and experience permanent union with Christ. This is objective. Okay, so let's ask the question. Is that major premise true? Does the Bible teach that? That all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved? Yes. Would we agree with that premise? Yes. Nod your head. Yes, that's, that's true. That's a true premise. Okay. Why is that a true premise? Well, Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. So major premise number one, if everyone who believes in Jesus will be saved. Is that, that is true. Okay, minor premise. I know in my heart I've done this. That's subjective, right? Okay, so what's the major premise? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If that's true, minor premise, okay, I've done that. I've done what the Bible says. And based upon the authority of the Bible, I have trusted in Jesus. I know I've done that. Okay, so then what's the conclusion? The conclusion is this. The Holy Spirit lets you know that you are indeed saved and secure in Christ. So here's the point. How do I know I'm saved? Because the Bible says I'm saved if I've trusted in Jesus. Have I trusted in Jesus? Yes, I've trusted in Jesus. Then I can know I'm saved. What if I don't feel like I'm saved? Or what if I don't experience I'm saved? Well, sometimes the Holy Spirit will come and He will let you know you are saved. And there will be evidences and fruit in your life to help you know you're saved. But the most important thing is that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I know I've done that based upon the objective truth of what the Bible says to be true. I know I'm saved because I've done that. Does, does that make sense? Okay. Any questions up to this point? 
see much more how many more papers I have here to get. Okay. All right, the struggle. Why is it such a struggle at times? You may, as a true believer, may have to wait a long time and struggle with many difficulties before gaining assurance. It may not be immediate. You may struggle. Now, again, it doesn't mean you're not saved. It means that you may struggle with wondering if you are saved. So here's here's the thing. I know I'm saved because I've trusted in the Lord. I know it in my heart, my head. I know objectively I am saved because I've trusted in the Lord. But in my heart, I just don't really feel like it. I'm going through some, a period of struggle. I'm going through a period of sin. I don't feel like I'm saved. Does that mean that you're not saved just because you don't feel like it? No, you're still saved, but it may take you a while to get to the point where you have the assurance to know that you are saved, even though you already are saved. Does that, does that make sense? So Isaiah 50, verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of the servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. How many times have you walked in darkness and had no light? Going through a dark, difficult time. What do you do during those dark, difficult times? You trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon God. Even when you may not see the light at the end of the tunnel, you still trust. Psalm 77, 7 through 8. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Notice how the psalmist struggled with it. What what questions are the psalmist asking? Has God stopped loving me? Are his promises not true anymore? Is God going to discipline me forever? Am I going to be in this situation forever? And and again, the answer is no, but the psalmist went through that. So, like we talked about last week, you cannot lose your salvation. But you can lose the assurance of your salvation. There will be times when you doubt God's love, you worry you may not be a Christian, or that you don't have enough faith. And these feelings come especially during times of falling into sin. When you're in periods of disobedience and sin, is when you feel the most like, I may not be saved. And what does Satan do to you during those times? You become a prime target for Satan during those times. Satan will tempt you in two ways. Number one, he wants you to sin, so he's going to entice you to sin. Because if you're going to sin, then you get into that pattern of just sin. Satan wants you to sin. He's going to entice you to sin. And when you do sin, what's Satan going to do? He's going to accuse you and shame you and make you doubt God's love for you. (laughs) Satan wants you to sin so that when you do sin, he can stick his finger in your face and say, yeah, you don't deserve God's love. You should be ashamed of yourself. I can't believe, no Christian would ever do that. You're a terrible person. How could God love you for what you did? I'm condemning you. Revelation tells us what Satan does. Revelation 12, 9 through 10. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard the loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser 
of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They love their lives unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell on them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. The devil is going to always accuse you before the throne. Now here's the thing. (laughs) What if the devil's right? Because you did sin. And he points out your sin to Jesus. The devil may be right in accusing you of a sin, but here's the point. Can that accusation ever stick and be held against you? No. Because Christ has died in your place and he's interceding for you. So when you're in periods of sin, the devil's going to come in and say, see, I told you, you're always failure. You're always going to fall. God's never going to love you. You're never going to know if you're saved. You might as well just give up. Just keep sinning. Just keep doing it. So true believers can have our assurance shaken and, and have it decreased, and actually sometimes we can lose our assurance. Not lose our salvation, but lose the assurance of salvation. So what are some reasons for lacking assurance of salvation? What are some reasons? Well, we talked about it earlier. We fall into major sin that grieves the Holy Spirit. When you fall into periods of sin, you're going to lose your, your assurance of salvation. Um, just for the sake of time, I'm not going to read Psalm 51, but you've probably read that before. Where That's when David you know, confesses to the Lord that he had sin with Bathsheba, committed adultery with her, then had Uriah killed, and he wants to be delivered from that. And um, he was in a period of extreme sin, and he just felt distant from the Lord, and he wanted to, to, to wonder if he was really saved. You kind of hear Paul's heart there. I mean, Paul, uh, David's heart there. Number two, we also sometimes may lose our salvation or lose our assurance, not lose our salvation, lose our assurance when we face an unexpected temptation that overwhelms us. And even though we don't give in, we're so close to walking over the line that we're shocked that we would actually fall into major sin. Okay, so the first one is I fell into the major sin. I must not be saved because I sinned. The second one would be like, oh man, I came really, really close to doing something I shouldn't have done. And the very fact that I got so close means, maybe I'm not saved. And as we said last week, can true Christians commit grievous sins? Yes. Does that mean you lose your salvation? No. And this leads to the third thing. We talked about this last week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But sometimes when we do live in a pattern of sin, God, God may seem distant to us, and God may discipline us, and we don't sense His presence in our lives. God may discipline us. God may seem distant. But it doesn't mean you've lost your salvation, but you may lose that assurance. So it really kind of comes in periods. You're going to doubt God's salvation probably in one of two things. When you're falling into major sin or you're going through a really tough time of tribulation and suffering. When you're going through tribulation and suffering, the first temptation is, why is this happening to me and God must not love me and therefore I must not be saved? Because if I was saved, this wouldn't be happening to me. The other one is, I'm in major sin, and why would I do this if I'm a Christian, and all Satan's doing is just throwing it in my face, and I'm probably not a Christian if I keep doing this, even though you, you are. So here's the point. You should never despair. You should never lose hope. 
Because through the work of the Spirit in us, you'll regain your assurance. Philippians 2, 12-13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is always at work in you giving you the desire to obey and giving you the power to, to obey. So you should never despair because God's always at work in you. Now, let's say you've lost your assurance. I'm not sure if I'm saved. I, I know in my head I'm saved, but I don't feel in my heart I'm, a, I'm saved. How do you regain your assurance? In other words, how do you work out your salvation with fear and trembling and, and, and try to regain the assurance that you lost? Again, not the salvation that you lost, but the assurance. Well, first, think about the glories of Christ on your behalf. What has Christ really done for you? You know, sometimes we don't spend time just meditating on what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. Again, for the sake of time, since I want to get to some questions, we may skip some of these scriptures. You guys can go back and read those, but 1 Peter 2, 4 through 7, Philippians 3, 8 through 11. Just stop and meditate and think and contemplate on your salvation and how God has been good to you and the promises of God. When you, when you look outside yourself and start thinking about the gospel and thinking about what Jesus has done for you, then your heart and mind get warm to the fact that, yes, I truly am, I am saved. Okay, second, keep a clear, clear conscience and be quick to confess and repent of sins. Keep a clear conscience and be quick in other words when you do fall into sin be quick to ask for forgiveness don't don't prolong it or hide it or stuff it or try to minimize it because the more you the more you don't deal with sin and minimize sin and try to hide it and try not deal with it and push it away the more you're going to have doubts the more you're going to struggle quickly confess sin and go to your father who does forgive you 1 John 1, 8-9 says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And again, I'm, uh, we're going to run out of time, so let me just... Um, third, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. I could probably preach a whole sermon on that, but we have 15 minutes, so I won't. Go back and read those passages in Ephesians 4 and 5. You can grieve the Holy Spirit by backbiting and unforgiveness and bitterness and anger and wrath, or you can continually be filled with the Holy Spirit, which evidences itself in worship and in singing and in praise and in thankfulness and submission. So instead of being, instead of grieving the Holy Spirit, be influenced by the Holy Spirit. And then fourth, we talked about this during sanctification one of those weeks. Um, one of the ways to keep your assurance is God's giving you the means of grace to strengthen your, your assurance. What are the means of grace? The means of grace are sitting in a worship service under preaching, being around other believers that encourage you, singing, praise, worship, encouragement, fellowship, being around other believers, also your own personal quiet time, your own Bible reading, just all the ways God has given to strengthen your faith. The more you're doing those things, the more you're going to be assured of your faith. Okay? And then how do I keep my assurance? 
Number one, don't abuse grace. Don't, don't think just because you're forgiven, you can do whatever you want. We talked about that last week. Don't have the attitude that I can, I can send my heart out because God loves to forgive and I can just do whatever I want. That, that's gonna, in other words, what I keep saying is anytime you, you get tempted to fall into sin, you're going to lose that assurance. Second, it goes back to looking outside yourself again. Constantly think about the stupendous mercy of God's grace towards you. I mean, we, we, I spent a whole sermon on it Sunday about the, are you humbled by mercy? When you're, when you're humbled by mercy, you can't help but, but burst into praise and just think about how God has been grace, gracious towards you, how he's loved you. Um, and then another thing, and this is an important one, this is kind of in the, the vein of sanctification as well. Third, keep your mind and heart set on things above. I will read this one. Let's, let's read this one. This is, this is maybe a new passage we haven't looked at over the past few weeks. Colossians 3, 1-4. If then you've been raised with Christ and seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on things of this earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Set your mind on things above. Set your mind and your heart outside of yourself on things above. Look to Jesus. Fourth, always walk in humility and avoid pride. The more you're humbled by grace, the more you're humbled by your salvation, the more that you're appreciative of what God has done for you, the more you'll always be in an attitude of knowing that he loves you and he saves you. So Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said this, the jewel of assurance, the jewel of assurance is best kept in the cabinet of a humble heart. The best way to know that you're saved, not how you're saved, the best way to know you're saved, just be humble before the Lord. Trust Him, humble yourself, realize your salvation, be overwhelmed by your salvation, don't be prideful and fall into sin, walk in step with the Spirit, just keep your mind constantly focused on on Jesus. All right, let's do this, let's pray, and then um, we'll let you guys go. Father, thank you for this time tonight. Um, it's been it's been encouraging lord to know that we cannot lose our salvation you'll never let us go we may struggle with wondering if we're saved at times but lord we just need to look outside ourselves to you jesus at your finished work and what you've done for us thank you holy spirit for working in us you do give us fruit and help us to kind of examine ourselves and and to and to, and to see if we have fruit in our lives and lord, holy spirit thank you for those times where you do minister to our hearts to let us know that we're saved so in, in all ways, we, just, we thank you, Triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, for your work in our lives and for our salvation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.